This is Ian Levitt, president of Studio Americana. What you're about to hear is the first episode of Here to There, a podcast focused on the current and future state of transportation. I'm proud to say it's also the first podcast we produce right here at Studio Americana. We're a new and innovative Twin Cities business designed to help organizations, small businesses, and individuals enter the podcast world without worrying about the capital and technical barriers required to produce and publish a professional recording. If your company or organization has been thinking about podcasts but hesitates because of these barriers, I invite you to contact me today by phone or by email, Ian, that's I-A-N, Ian, at studioamericana.com. We can set up a tour of the studios and discuss a custom package that meets your particular needs. Learn more at studioamericana.com. And now, please enjoy episode one of Here to There. Welcome to Here to There, a podcast about commuting in and around the Twin Cities and where it could go next. From Apparatus and Transit for Livable Communities and co-hosted by Laley Fatahi and Laura Mann-Ginsberg, Here to There brings you along for a variety of commutes across the many systems, neighborhoods, and modes available to Twin Cities commuters. In today's episode, we focus on healthy transportation options and the policies that support them. We'll start with a biking commute in Minneapolis with two members of the Minneapolis Bicycle Coalition before heading to the studio where we're joined by the Health Equity Manager at Blue Cross and Blue Shield. To follow along with additional resources and information, visit heretotheirpodcast.org. And now, let's join the ride. Why don't we talk a little bit about what we'll be doing today in terms of uh, the commute we'll be taking and uh, what kind of route we'll be looking at. This is Laura, one of your podcast co-hosts, and that was Matt, our project fellow and a master's candidate in urban and regional planning at the University of Minnesota Humphrey School of Public Affairs. He'll be interviewing our bikers. And to mention up front, this is really and truly a commute, so there's some background noise along the way. So this is also kind of my route to work. So we're going to get on 16th Avenue South or 17th. 17th is a bike delivered but I like 16 because it's just like a neighborhood uh, road, so it's quieter, it's just like pretty much a, a bike delivered as well. So we're gonna take that all the way to the Greenway, which is my favorite place to be, it's heaven. And then we're gonna take that all the way to Uptown, Hennepin and Lake area. And then we will exit the Greenway there, and then we're going to get on maybe like 29? No, not 29. What's before Hennepin? Whatever one of those streets is. And this is Salam. We'll be biking with her and her fiancé Darius. You'll hear from all three of them about their experiences. Well, actually, I'm thinking we might want to go a little further and then cut over. That's Darius. Okay. Oh, And then bike up those two blocks and then walk or bike bike the wrong way on the sidewalk because that's where the business is but we need to bike slowly on the mm-hmm. sidewalk because that's one of the big rules. For Minneapolis bikers, it's everything from the daily commute to once-in-a-lifetime errands, like wedding invite printing, that takes them to the streets and trails. But being a serious biker means seriously preparing. And where are we going again today? We're going to FedEx because we have, uh, we have to print our invitation cards for our wedding. That's where we're going to go today. Yeah. And uh, on the topic of when you do groceries with your bikes, do you have any special equipment? I know I've seen you know, the people who do grocery shopping have these like, massive 
bikes with big bins in the back. Do you have anything special? Or just come here? So I don't know if you can see my bike over there, right behind yeah, the art sale. Yep. And it has that uh, crate, milk crate. Yep. Is that what it's called? Yeah, yep. milk crate at the back. So that's what I use. Darius has this thing that he can hook onto the side of his Up bike. So we use that if we are carrying stuff. And then I also have a uh, foldable mm -hmm. basket. Someday soon I'm going to get a touring bike so I can, for work, I want to sometimes be able to transport heavier items. And then I also use a backpack. In a city where it seems like bikers are everywhere, after all, we're ranked as one of the best biking cities in the country and have over 129 miles of on-street bikeways and 97 miles of off-street bikeways, it's easy to forget that it doesn't come naturally to everyone. So I am from Ethiopia and I came to St. Paul to go to undergrad and then I lived in St. Paul for four years so I finished my undergrad and then I moved to Minneapolis to do my graduate school at the School of Public Health. I actually, this is something I'm proud of, I taught myself how to bike my second year of undergrad. I did not know how to bike at all. I grew up in a culture where women didn't bike so I never had access to a bike or had access to anyone that could teach me how to bike. So second year I just decided that this was something I wanted to learn and this summer I made it my goal and I came out of that summer with a lot of scars but yeah. with a bike and knowing how to. What made you so determined mm -hmm. to want to learn to ride a bike? I think it just was like I would look at people at school biking and I'm like wow they just look so free they, they had so much control about where they can go, when they want to go you know like there's so much you have control over using a bike versus and like I was new to the American life, so I wasn't very comfortable riding the bus. But I wanted to be able to bike to the river and just like weed there or whatever. Yeah. And there wasn't a bus that connected me directly down to the river. So yeah, I just decided that it was something I wanted to be able to do. Even if you are from here, there can be other barriers that make biking an attractive transportation option. You know, I grew up in the suburbs and I couldn't, you know, my parents weren't weren't able to, you know, buy me the classes, the permit classes. So I was required then to either ask my folks for rides or get around via my bicycle. So it was always my bicycle. So yeah. where, where in the suburbs did you... Uh, uh, I grew up in Maple Grove. Maple Grove? Yeah. yeah. And how, when you were biking, like I grew up in the suburbs too, mm -hmm. and I probably lived like a mile from school, which is yeah. very bikeable. Yeah. No one did mm. was it. Was it the same? Over yeah, there? I think some folks walk, but I don't think many people biked in in Maple Grove. Did you bike to school? No, I never biked to school. No. I always took the school bus. Because you were like a little further away than just a mile, right? Oh yeah, I was like six miles. Even with our reputation as a bike-forward city and state, there are serious infrastructure changes and improvements that need to be considered. So I think St. Paul is great, and I love St. Paul, but it has a lot of catching up with regard to infrastructure. But in this neighborhood even, I think south of 38th on Chicago had bike lanes, but north of 38th on Chicago didn't have bike lanes for a long time. And from my, some of my work, I was always taught to like measure the street to see if bike lanes are feasible. Could they fit? Are there different configurations of the street? And I was like, there isn't. And so I was wondering why, why the hell did further south have bike lanes but not further north? And then you look at the demographics changes of those two neighborhoods and then it's like, oh, hmm. Is, is that why? It's because one's a little wealthier, one's much whiter than the other. And so I think 
addressing where infrastructure gets placed and where investment happens at. And where it doesn't. And where it doesn't. Mm-hmm. And the places where it doesn't, why? Why? Like, let's change that. Let's not prioritize mm-hmm. folks that already have plentiful infrastructure and, and means to who aren't as uh, maybe uh, active active transportation dependent or uh, transit dependent. Do you ever have any problems with the, the connections between public transit and biking? I know like the buses only have two racks, the light rails only have a few racks too. Is that ever something that has yeah. become, come up? There was a time like a bus driver like had us bring our bikes in like because we didn't, they didn't, they, there weren't a lot of people in the, in the bus so there was room but the two racks were taken. So. We've been accommodated when we had bikes that we needed to transport ourselves, uh, transport with us. And then, in terms of transport, I think a, a, a big factor for me before I like started combining active transportation and public transit was I didn't know how to use that thing. And one day I decided to use it and I did it wrong. And the bus driver got kind of angry because he had to come out and help me. And so like that was like a very big deterring factor for me. And so it took me a while to get comfortable doing that. Yeah. And I think that's also a lot of people's. Mm-hmm. I am part of the Bicycle Coalition. I'm on the board and that's one thing we are aiming to work on for open streets is like to have a bus come in and demonstrate how to unt- untangle, like just like this, this, disengage whatever the thing is and put your bike on it and then, and then how to like safely lock your bike there, yeah. put it in place. So I think it's like people get intimidated by that. But bus drivers are nice. Considering the diversity of the Twin Cities and the need for equity across transportation plans and systems, we asked Salam about how we can improve inclusivity. My new dream is to engage refugees and immigrants in active transportation because I am convinced that a lot of them do come from communities and countries and regions that do bike and active transport a lot. But they come here and there's so much barrier, structural, knowledge, information-wise, and I feel like that's just a need that's never really talked about or like ever really addressed. And so, yeah, I feel like that's something, whether with the Bicycle Coalition or whoever else is interested, kind of want to do. When you say active transportation, what do you mean? Well, I guess I got this word from the Bicycle Coalition, actually, to be honest, because we're also including pedestrian advocacy in our work. So we've brought in to use active transportation as a language because that includes biking, walking, rolling. And I think some more tied in there that we're not talking about is public transit. So, but that's what I mean by active transportation. As you can tell, our riders have been moving along during their discussion. Darius is going to catch us up. So we rode from uh, Mayday Cafe in the Powderhorn neighborhood to 17th Avenue Bicycle Boulevard and we connected up to the um, Greenway to head west to uh, Uptown area to get stop at FedEx Kinko's to print our wedding invites. In case you didn't know, the Greenway is a five and a half mile stretch of bicycle and walking trails spanning South Minneapolis. Fun transportation fact, it goes along a former railroad corridor. And so we are here, just kind of uh, perched in an alleyway to get a little bit better sound on for the recorder. And the greenway was buzzing. There were a lot of people. There were a lot of people walking, a lot of people on bikes. It's a beautiful day. It's the ocean of bikes. Yeah, it's wonderful. We do especially enjoy seeing uh, people of color on bikes. Yeah. I think we, that really gets us excited. Even if we don't know them, we'll, we'll probably say hi. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. we don't, that's not. That's kind of a rare sighting. I mean, yeah. just demographic-wise, mm-hmm. just based uh, numbers, it makes yeah. sense. But yeah, so we get very excited to see people we know or people of color on bikes interacting with the city. Mm-hmm. 
what do you think like the lack of people of color on bikes has to comes from eminence from and what might be able to be done you know at a neighborhood level or at any level really to make everyone feel comfortable riding a bike or have access to these this kind of piece of infrastructure so i yeah i have a few thoughts i think it's group rides so today uh tamales bicicletas is a group over in the phillips neighborhood they're doing an environmental tour like bad polluters in the neighborhood and then I, th I think of other just like neighborhood groups like uh, Sister Kusaba, who you know mm -hmm. from Hope Community. I'm not sure if she's like leads it or, but she organized or was a part of a Big Booty Black Girls on Bikes. Okay. Um, and so just like different initiatives to try to encourage not your typical spandex wearing older white man to ride bike. So. And, and in terms of, you know, having access to bikes. Are there communities or are there organizations in the Twin Cities to help yeah. people get access to this? How'd you get your first bike, Salam? Yeah, my first bike, I got it because this awesome bike shop called um, Cycles for Change. They're based in St. Paul on, your, on, on the university corridor. And they have a program called Earn a Bike, which is that they like get a lot of bicycles donated to them. Some are just like fine. You just need like to work on them a little bit and others need more work, but you, choose your bike and for a month for Saturdays you come in into the shop uh, I want to say 10 to 2 and then work on the bike and they help you build the bike up to, to a stage where it's functional that you can use it and then that's why it's called it's earn a bike you earn it you work and I think that is to serve two purposes first is to provide access to bikes to people that normally don't have it and second is also to teach those people to learn how to maintain their bikes and just like get to know their bikes uh, more and so that's how I got I got my first bike and I was so grateful for it I love that bike and they still have that program and they also added learn to bike program which people who don't know how to bike can attend classes and sessions to learn how to bike so I think Cycles for Change is one of them I think there are a few bike shops in North Minneapolis that also do something similar a good number of bike shops also have W2F uh, sessions, women, trans, femme, open shop uh, times over the week that they're open where people that identify with those identities and belong to those communities can come and work on their bikes, borrow tools, or just like have access to these resources. So I think there are a number of bike shops that do great work around this. To wrap up the ride, we asked Darius and Salam what they'd like to see as bicyclists going forward. Even though I don't use the Greenway super much, is seeing the Greenway extended where the railroad is over the, uh, the river, that would be great. But then also just far more bike infrastructure that encourages and allows people to use the streets as they will and they need. And just less planning that's so auto-centric and potentially like, depending on where the technology is, bike infrastructure along the highways. But then also I would love to see like, really great either bus rapid transit or light rail in the middle of the highways and just the development is not bad but just like build like quality characterized developments that would be my hope i think for me like right now my interest is more in like the refugee and immigrant population here in minnesota and i think we're seeing a lot of like health conditions that are chronic like hurt and like cardiovascular diseases and I feel like that's something like active transportation access to it familiarity to it knowledge about it uh, infrastructure around where they are could definitely help address again I go back to this thing that 
these individuals came from communities where they biked or walked way more than they do here. And I feel like it's more, it's, I think what needs to be done to bridge that gap is to address those issues, the access, the knowledge, and the infrastructure around them. And so I just want the city to do, I think, a little bit more around that and just like bring them into the narrative of what active transportation means in this city that we live in. Bike ride. We're back in the studio, and I'm joined by my partner at Apparatus, Laylee Fatahi. Hey, Laura. So now we're going to move from the bike lane to the bigger question of how we can make healthy choices the default choice. So you interviewed Vijang Mua from Blue Cross Blue Shield for the rest of the discussion. What are some of the things we'll hear about uh, healthy transportation options and the policy to support them in your interview? Yeah, so we had a great conversation, and we talked about initiatives like Complete Streets, the 8 and 80 rule, Safe Routes to School, and other ways that we can not just encourage healthy transportation as a feasible option, but hopefully make it even the default option for Minnesotans that are getting from here to there. We also talked about bigger questions, like how do we prioritize equitable policy and programs in order to truly combat chronic and acute health issues. It was a really fascinating interview, and we hope you enjoy. I am joined in studio now by Vijang Mua, who is the Blue Cross Senior Advocacy and Health Equity Principal at the Center for Prevention, which is a mouthful, but it sounds like a lot of really great things coming together. Thank you for being in the studio. And can you start by telling us a little bit about what you do at Blue Cross? My role at Blue Cross really is to lead and execute strategy on our health equity uh, policy issues, and which cut across our food systems work, our physical activity, which touches upon the built environment and transportation and our commercial tobacco control uh, strategies as well. So it's a very cross-cutting role mm-hmm. uh, and it's in recognition that many of the sources of chronic disease are uh, happening in community and outside of healthcare. And the main drivers of preventable, preventable death and disease come from um, chronic disease like cardiovascular disease, heart mm-hmm. disease, diabetes, and um, cancer. Okay. And how is Minnesota doing in some of those areas? Are are there some preventable diseases that we are, you know, inordinately high with or? Yeah. You know, Minnesota is a unique state, and I know every state says that too, but the tragedy and triumph of Minnesota, I'll, I'll, I'll call it that, is that we have some of the worst health and cross-sector inequities in the entire country, Mm. right? I don't know if you can go a whole day here in Minnesota without hearing about the achievement gap, the unemployment gap, the housing inequities, and that cuts very deeply into chronic disease as well. Mm -hmm. For example, in Minnesota, we have a 59% smoking rate in the American Indian communities, but uh, Minnesota as a whole is at about 14%. Wow. Okay? So that's a major inequity in smoking prevalence. And we see this phenomena in multiple diseases, uh, chronic and acute uh, care. Uh, and it's applied across the entire health spectrum from what we call the social determinants of health, like income, mm-hmm. race, mm-hmm. geography, 
all the way to healthcare access to insurance coverage. So these inequities are very evident, and uh, we, in Minnesota we have very high peaks and very low valleys here. Yeah. So how do you reconcile that with you know? Uh, when I see all the postings about us being ranked as one of the best places to live and one of the healthiest states and some of the best air quality and our our beautiful lakes and and all that, that's really at odds with what you're saying about these equity issues. Is there an education gap just in you know the public understanding that? Laura, you you hit on perhaps the, the one of the most important and under underappreciated inequities, which is the prioritization of of inequities themselves, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so again, when you're looking at just data and, and prevalence, mortality or morbidity or home ownership or graduation rates, uh, when when the public hears those gaps, there's a, a vast difference in uh, how that is received and perceived based on your lived experience or your alliance or value of, of, of equity, whether it's racial or ability or education. Uh, for example, the Star Tribune did a uh, public opinion poll on public views of the Black Lives Matter uh, movement, right? And what we saw was most white Minnesotans saw that it was, wasn't a viable uh, and, and strong movement, whereas most people of color thought it was a very legitimate and needed movement. Hmm. Um, so how I reconcile that is I, I would say there's a big, bright asterisk anytime you hear Minnesota is the healthiest state. Mm-hmm. Twin Cities, again, are the most livable place to live. Uh, Minneapolis is number one or number two most bikeable community. And I, th- I think if you were to look below the surface and look at who, who is experiencing that prosperity, um, then you would, you would quickly understand that if you're not white, if you're not middle income, then you're not part of that prosperity. Uh, I, I, I think there's a Garrison-Keeler effect here, right? So on, on average, we are better than average, mm-hmm. right? But then if, if you don't belong to the mainstream, you're doing worse than the worse. So wow. uh, I think um, Minnesota has a, uh, I, I'm glad you used the word reconciliation because I think we do need to reconcile mm-hmm. this, um, I don't call it a, a, a paradox, I think it's um, something more intentional and deliberate and by design, mm-hmm. how we design our communities, how we design our policies, uh, and public health science uh, st- uh, supports this, that most of what creates health is outside of health care. Mm-hmm. And when you, um, when you look beyond genetics and health care access, so much of what is creating health is, uh, again, these social determinants of health. Mm-hmm. And that, that tells us that these are human creations, right? right? People decide upon them. We don't have a, an equitable venue to make equity a priority because ultimately I think it's a political issue, not a scientific issue. And I think that the term, you know, gets kind of bandied about and, you know, it, it becomes sort of a, a, a word with no meaning, you know, equity mm-hmm. and inequity. And there's a lot of tipping of the hat to, yes, we must, we should, we can, we will. But to your point, maybe not even the capacity to understand what right. that conversation right. needs to be. And I think in Minnesota, the dominant narrative is definitely we wouldn't endorse racism, right, or discrimination. But I think there's a false sense of progressive immunity mm-hmm. to racism here, mm-hmm. right? And then that plays out in the way you design 
a funding uh, scheme or a policy mm-hmm. or some or a comprehensive plan, mm-hmm. right? And then it's a self-perpetuating cycle because then you attract, you know, similar attract similar exactly. and right, right. We can't solve that today, but I wanted to. I didn't want to let Minnesota off the hook because I think we we have a profound opportunity to change our our course here. But mm-hmm. you can't do that unless you recognize. You have to get beyond the averages and see that the valleys are deeply connected to what is creating our peaks here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can you say more about what complete streets are? Yes, yes. Thank you for that. Complete streets is basically a concept, uh, transportation concept that builds in the considerations of all users and all modes at the front end of policy making or decision making. So then we're thinking about bikers, walkers, people with disabilities, somebody on a uh, in a wheelchair, there's a common rule that we, we use, which is called the 8 and 80 rule. So mm-hmm. are we designing the transportation system for somebody who's 8 years old and 80 year, years old? So again, uh, it's not a design prescription, but it's more of a built-in consideration mm-hmm. at the front end of, of a planning project. Right, that anticipatory of who's going to use it and how might they need to have that built into the system. Exactly, okay. exactly. And there are some misunderstandings of complete streets, which... Sure. It's not about having sidewalks and cornfields here, right? A complete street in a rural setting may may be just a a shoulder on a highway. Mm -hmm. That may suffice for that context, right? Uh, And so we're not talking about a a biking lane, a rollerblading lane, a skateboarding lane for every road everywhere. Uh, It's really context sensitive, but we're wanting to make sure that for that situation, how do you meet the needs of all the users and not treat biking, walking, and transit as amenities, but as essentials mm-hmm. and long-term investments. I would be remiss if I didn't name policies I, like Safe Routes to School. Right, That's been a big initiative here in Minnesota. There's strong leadership here. A colleague of mine, Jill Chamberlain, is the state coordinator for Safe Routes to School. And Safe Routes to School, if you haven't heard of it, is basically both a engineering and a education program to promote biking and walking to and from school. Uh, and this is a practice that I, I grew up in. I think a lot of people over 35 have probably grew up like this. But we want to make sure that if students have the option uh, that they can bike and walk safely. You know, and, and a lot of this is just from helping parents become aware of the benefits and demystifying some of the, the fears of letting their children bike and walk to school. Uh, and some things can be as easy as just painting a, a crosswalk. Or making sure there's good signage, you know. And again, I would just say that Safe Routes of School, we want to make sure we're considering not just physical activity, but holistic health. We're not routing kids to go in front of a tobacco shop, for example, or in front of fast food. So we want to make sure it's Safe Routes of School and not Safe Routes to all these unhealthy destinations, too. The Department of Health has gotten behind this. The Department of Transportation has gotten behind this. Blue Cross. Mm-hmm. has supported this too. And again, this is a policy that's driven by educating parents in schools and also getting bonding dollars to change the physical environment as well. And then there are some local policy drivers too. A, a policy that I think is promising is that Matt Collins adopted a uh, equity criterion in the way they review transportation projects. Mm-hmm. So if they're reviewing and scoring transportation projects that come to their desk and if there's a potential inequity or an equity benefit. They're attaching points and dollars to those projects. And I think that's going to be a very powerful policy driver mm-hmm. that influences how we design. 
So have you been working <clears throat> with some of the local coalitions then, you know, especially living in Minneapolis, I've seen very marked transformations on the roads around me where the bike lanes are very integrated into some of these major streets and intersections. Do you find that working with some of those coalitions is a productive way both in and out of the capital to get that work to progress? Definitely productive, but more so necessary and strategic. I don't pretend to ever be Barbara McCann or John LaPlante or Ethan Foley uh, or Latricia at the Bicycle mm-hmm. Coalition, right? I don't pretend to be that expert or an engineer or a planner. But I think where my role and where Blue Cross can come in is to, again, bring in the health equity connection and bring that set of interests and perspective, not to displace the environmental benefits or economic benefits, but to make sure it's part of the conversation and part of the consideration. So working with coalitions like Transportation Forward, that's been a key coalition that we support. We don't have expertise in all the various funding streams and how could you finance this. I'm, we don't pretend to even know that. But what we do know and what the science tells us is that a community that is building and uh, assessing for all the users and all the modes is going to promote public health. And so that's what we care about is to have long-term dedicated funding for biking, walking, and transit. So okay. Transportation Forward is one coalition. You referenced uh, Minneapolis Bicycle Coalition. We work closely with them. Uh, we work with Cycles for Change, mm-hmm. multiple local community-based organizations who have both the ability, credibility, and, and knowledge to do this well. And we want to make sure we're, we're a strong partner with them. You know, I'm a big fan of Cycles for Change. I don't know if you've heard of Cycles for Change, but they're a nonprofit group that really builds in a strong equity value and practice into their work, where they're trying to help low-income citizens and residents not only learn how to repair a bike or change a tire, but how, how to understand the biking community, the physical network, and, and how to become even more civically engaged. Mm-hmm. And so it's a very comprehensive approach and um, culturally competent approach to educating citizens and residents of all levels of readiness. And I mean language, understanding culture, and understanding just laws. To get at what your, your, the need that you're bringing up, I, I think there needs to be stronger community engagement, community organizing, and authentic outreach programs and services. I'll name one from my shop. Blue Cross, as you may know, uh, supports a huge and prominent bike sharing program called Nice Ride. And to make sure that we supplement that bike sharing program and address some of the potential inequities there, that we're going deeper to communities that may not live close to these stations or may not know how to use the, the, the stations or may not even have some of the financial tools to uh, and resources to to utilize them. And so we've created a program called Neighborhood Nice Ride. So it's, again, it's to be a step further upstream than our main Nice Ride program and mm-hmm. to educate people on how to even bike, all the basic bike safety features so that you have the essentials before, both in knowledge, technical and safety knowledge, as well as some of the tools, the physical tools like a bike and a helmet before mm-hmm. you can even get into the Nice Ride program. Something that I um, I think it's important to examine is again going back to Minnesota's unique inequities. Mm-hmm. You know, I think there's something very funky going on here in Minnesota, right? Like 
how is it possible that a state with this set of resources and relatively progressive views, look at the nonprofit base here, look at the, the history of civic engagement and all the resources, how is it possible that Minnesota, uh, again, is touted as a, a great, prosperous place, whether you're looking at health, education, all these indicators, and yet these vast inequities primarily based on race. Mm-hmm. Right? So I think there needs to be a, an interrogation of why does this exist here in Minnesota. So even on average, our health status is better than, say, Mississippi, but our inequities are some of the worst in the, in the country. So I think my personal opinion, not necessarily Blue Cross, is mm-hmm. that I think Minnesota has a cultural phenomena that creates a color blindness in our policymaking. Right, so whether we're making a policy on a staffing plan, uh, a budget, a project, or or a new board, or a bill going through the mm-hmm. legislature or a Met Council, I think there's something um, in Minnesota's civic engagement culture mm-hmm. that isn't allowing us to be to see the nuances and differences in culture. We have some of the largest refugee and immigrant communities in the entire country, mm-hmm. right, from Southeast Asia, from Africa. We have a very powerful indigenous movement and community here in Minnesota. So mm-hmm. the racial dynamics in Minnesota are not the way it is on the coast. Mm-hmm. West and East Coast has a, a fairly strong black and Latino and, and white dynamic. Mm-hmm. Here in Minnesota, it's, it's, there's a strong overlay of refugees and immigrants. Uh, and that's not to take away from, from other communities experiencing these inequities. But mm-hmm. I think Minnesota needs to grapple with what is happening in the way we how we prioritize these inequities when we hear them, and how do we embed our response in policymaking. And not just big P policy, but mm-hmm. policies in our organization, in our sectors. Well, that makes me even think of your point about Met Council bringing in equity factors you know, to its validation criteria. And it's like, but who's making the judgment calls, A, about what those equity factors are, and then B, how to weight them? Right. You know, there's there's something to be said for changing the entire makeup right. of, you know, when you're thinking about who are the legislators and who is representing, you know, are we even fairly represented just with different backgrounds at the table? Right. I mean, it could be homogenous in one way and completely heterogeneous in another. And, you know, I think one of the things we suffer from is a lot of homogeneity on, yeah. on all aspects. Right. And that really stymies some of these conversations from being able to be as multifaceted as they could be. And I think we suffer from that where it matters the most, you know, and I, I don't mean to throw my, my coalitions and my colleagues under the bike here, but, you know, I'll, I'll be at the Capitol and there'll be a hearing on some equity laden policy, whether it's housing or transportation or uh, addressing food access issues. And most, if not all of the policymakers themselves are white. Right? And I'm not talking about just the composition, but there there are no allies there, right? People who are who either have the lived experience or the support and worldview of, of, of trying to support those who face inequities. So either we lack representation or we lack alliance. And then many of the lobbyists that are trying to influence them, whether they're contract contracted or organizational lobbyists, do not come from communities of color or from communities experiencing inequities. And then there's a vast gap between the coalitions that are organized, whether they have lobbyists or not, 
to influence policymakers and lobbyists. So there's a there's an inequity within the advocacy infrastructure right. itself from the roots, grassroots organizations, coalitions, lobbyists, policymakers themselves. Mm-hmm. And so we, we don't have a, an equitable venue to make equity a priority. Couldn't agree more. Well, thank you. Thank you. This has been fantastic. Really appreciate your time and having you in the studio today. And that'll do it for this part of our discussion. So thank you very much, Vijan. Thanks for having me. Here to There is produced by Apparatus, Transit for Livable Communities, and Studio Americana. Your hosts are Laili Fatahi and Laura Mangensberg. Production and editing by Ian Levitt with Studio Americana. Original music by Joshua Hollenhorst. No part of this podcast may be used or reproduced without express written consent of Apparatus. To join the ride, subscribe to Here to There wherever you get your favorite podcasts and visit heretotherepodcast.org for additional content, including extended interviews, an interactive commuting story map, pictures and videos from our commutes, and much more. Mm-hmm.